If you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, you'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll also find the text for this morning's message on the reverse side of the notes. Luke chapter 22. And after spending four weeks going through um, Jesus predicting the end, um, we now pick up the pace of the narrative as Luke begins nearly sprinting to the end to the cross. Um, This morning we'll look at final preparations for Passover, and this week, next week, and the week following, we'll work through Lord preparing and then teaching his disciples in the upper room during the great feast of Passover and instituting what is known as the Lord's Supper, the very uh, symbolic meal that we will share in later this morning. And so it's a very instructive passage for us. Um, We'll begin by reading the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 22 and begin to look at final preparations for the Passover. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we might eat it. And they said to him, Where will, we, will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Lord God, you have been preparing this Passover for thousands of years. You've been preparing through your people's history, through your law, for the day when you would send the Lamb of God, your Son. And now as that day, that hour draws near in the text, we pray that you would help us to see See the glories of Jesus, his faithfulness, his love, his compassion, your wisdom, your goodness, also helps to see and shudder from the evil and the corruption of his enemies as they stand in such stark contrast. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. What we have before us in these 13 verses are two different groups of people preparing for the Passover. We see Judas, the chief priests, and the scribes make their preparations. We see Jesus and his disciples make their preparations. This is a passage absolutely dripping with irony. Now, irony is, of course, the opposite of wrinkly. No, irony is... Okay. Okay, I apologize for that. It's too early. No, but it is absolutely dripping in irony. Um, and, and Luke has 
a dramatic tension building. I want you to see it in the text. Verse 1, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near. Now this falls after a passage where Jesus speaks about things drawing near. The kingdom is drawn near. The hour is drawn near. It's desolation has drawn near. First, the feast of unleavened bread draws near. Then in verse 7, then came the day. And then we'll pick up next week in verse 14, the hour came. So it's coming near. The day is here. The hour is here. And interestingly, the hour is not the crucifixion, but the Last Supper. If you read through John's gospel, he's constantly talking about Jesus' hour. His hour is not yet. The hour is the cross. Here, Luke has something he wants us to see in chapter 22, some glory, some insight, some wisdom that takes place prior to the cross. And so we will work through this in the next three weeks, and actually more than that, getting through the entirety of um, the upper room discourse, really all the way through verse 40, uh, 46. But specifically, the institution of the Lord's Supper um, and final preparations for the Passover. And I want you to consider some of the ironies in this passage. The Passover celebrates God's faithfulness and covenant loyalty. In fact, God's deliverance from Egypt begins with the Lord heard their cries of the people, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he saw, and he cared. And he came, and he sent a deliverer. So the Passover and God's release from Egypt is a celebration of God's faithfulness, God's covenant loyalty, his fidelity. These men are busy plotting a betrayal. Passover marked Israel's release from slavery, and yet we see these men continue to labor in bondage. They continue to fear the people. They continue to be enslaved to their desires. The Passover celebrates God's gift of life. The firstborn son did not have to die. God spared it, gave that life back, yet they plot death. The Passover marked God's passing over of just punishment. These men plot an unjust murder. The Passover was a celebration of Israel's participation. The Passover was a celebration Israel participated in as part of their thankfulness and faithfulness to God. Look what God has done for us. We will show our gratitude and our thanks by faithfully observing this feast. These religious leaders plot to put God in the flesh to death. And the word Passover is all over this passage. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 1. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover. Verse 7, the Unleavened Bread on which the Passover lamb. Verse 8, the Passover. Verse 11, Passover. Verse 13, Passover. You get the idea where Luke wants us to understand as he's ramping this up, we're approaching the Passover. And it's hugely ironic what is taking place. We're going to look at this in two points. First, Judas conspires with the chief priests and scribes, and then in contrast, stark, stark contrast, Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare the upper room. And I want you to see three things in these first six verses. First, the timing, the motive, and the opportunity. But let's read verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred to the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. 
First, the timing. And, and as I just said, Luke wants us to understand this takes place in the approach to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Passover. And in our preparation for studying the Passover, I think it would be helpful to read its institution. There's actually two events, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, frequently referred to as one event, one, one um, ritual observance, because of their close proximity. But turn in your Bibles, keep your finger here, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, the very first Passover in Israel history. In fact, Israel's not even a nation at this point. They're just slaves in Egypt. Because God was setting up in his deliverance of his people patterns, pictures that we should recognize in Christ as he comes. So it helps us to see those patterns in their first instance, to see them fulfilled in Jesus. Now we're going to read a big chunk of this here, but I think it's well worth reading. So God has just, through Moses, threatened the final plague against Pharaoh. Then verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and he shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it in raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs, its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you Memorial Day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. On the first month of the 14th day of the evening, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. So pause. So what you've got is... It's kicked off by selecting a lamb, bringing the lamb into the home on the 10th day of the month. The lamb is brought into the home. You can imagine the children would grow dear to it. 
And then each family would kill the lamb. The priest doesn't do the killing. The families do. And then the lamb is eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Thus begins the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. It starts and ends with a holy ceremony day. And so the feast of unleavened bread and Passover are linked together. Now, jump down to verse 21 where Moses gives instructions to the elders on how to keep this. I think the, the symbology, what it signifies, jumps out more clearly. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel the two doorposts of the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So just consider this. What God sets up for his deliverance is this. First, the lamb is killed. Then you need to apply the blood. And then you need to hide in that house and remain inside of it. You start to see how some of this sets some things up. Jesus, our Passover lamb, will be killed. His blood applied to our account. And we cling and stay inside, clothed in Christ. It, it sets those things up and, and it's here. Another would die. Blood would be applied. And you hide under the protection of the blood in your house. And the destroyer passes over. And that's what's commemorated at the feast Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Luke reminds us and reminds us repeatedly, it is here. Something important is about to happen. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. But before we see what Jesus is going to do, we, we see his enemies as they prepare and conspire. The timing, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, and it commemorates the exodus from Egypt. It commemorates the exodus from Egypt. Now, turn back in Luke chapter 9. If you remember, Jesus was up on the mountain. He was transfigured into light. And two men appeared to speak with him, Moses and Elijah. And I want you to look at verse 31. And in my ESV has a footnote that gives a more literal reading. Look at verse 30 and 31. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his ESV departure, footnote, Greek, Exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses appeared to Jesus on Mount of Transfiguration and spoke to him about an exodus that Jesus would execute in Jerusalem. And here, Luke draws our attention to Passover, which is coming, which celebrates God's deliverance from Egypt. And then I wrongly wrote, I used the wrong word, culminating. It begins, doesn't culminate, it begins in the death of a lamb begins in the death of a lamb. And we won't read through Deuteronomy 16, but in Deuteronomy 16, again, the, the Passover is prescribed, is laid out. One thing I do want to note, I'll read for you Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. One of, the one thing that changes in the prescription of the Passover in Deuteronomy is rather than each person doing it in their own house, they will do it at the place the Lord will choose. Which means, in Jesus' day, every faithful Israelite male who's able-bodied must, three times a year, travel to Jerusalem to observe these feasts. Jerusalem will be overflowing with such people. 
for the Passover has to be celebrated in Jerusalem. So the timing, here's, here's what's taking place. The Passover is drawing near. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is drawing near. Jerusalem is going to be absolutely jam-packed with travelers and sojourners from all over the land. Next, we move to motive. Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who is of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might destroy him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So first thing we notice is this. The chief priests and scribes' wicked desire. Their wicked desire. I skipped over verse 2, but verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. They feared the people. This is ongoing. Even though they've taken Jesus head on and had conflict with him six times in the temple, even though he's defeated them soundly at every point, they are resolute in their desire. And one of the things Luke points us to is their mistake is not an innocent mistake. If it were, they would have been educated by this point. They've been silenced at his mastery of the scripture. They've been silenced at his wisdom as he unmasks their hypocrisy. They're plotting. These religious leaders are hiring spies to send in to try to, to trip him up. No, they just want him dead. And that, again, is part of the irony. The, the ones who controlled the temple, Israel's religious leaders, are blaspheming the Passover. They are not celebrating God's deliverance. They are not celebrating God's passing over of justice. They are trying to implement injustice. And they're still seeking how they might put him to death. And one of the things I want you to note here is that maybe another irony we could point out is this. They are attempting to befuddle, destroy, trip up, um, ruin, frustrate Jesus and his plans. And yet in the very act of doing that, they fulfill God's sovereign plan. They would rebel against Jesus and they do exactly what Jesus knows they will do and plans to do. Jesus intends to go to the cross. So in setting this up, they actually are doing the purpose of God unwillingly, unknowingly. Not that that will be of any excuse to them, but our God is sovereign. We sang with that this morning. And just as a, a Roman Caesar issuing a decree for the registration of men to their hometowns back at the beginning of Luke... He may have thought that was a way of flexing his power and showing people who's boss, is again fulfilling God's sovereign purposes. Jesus long predicted this would happen. In Luke 9, he called the 12 together. In Luke 9, 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Jesus nails it exactly right. He'd be killed and on the third day raised. He knew that would be their intent. They've been trying to do this ever since he took over in the temple. But we see also that they sought how to put him to death. That's the issue there. That's your blank, the how. It's, it's emphasized in the text. They, they want to do it. The problem that, that is in front of them is they don't know how to do it. Because Jesus, we've been told, is surrounded by a crowd from dusk till dawn. He's teaching in the temple day to night. And there's people, crowds of people, getting up early in the morning, hanging on his every words. They fear the people. That's the next point. They still fear the people. And so they don't know how to, how to get him, how to lynch him, how to lay hands on him without instigating a riot from the people. And so they are frustrated. They, they want to lay hands on him. They want to, to arrest him. 
they fear the people. They've been fearing the people for a long time. And the proverb says, the, uh, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. This is another indication of that they know they're guilty. If they had real evidence, if they were in the right, they would not be afraid of the people. But no, they fear the people. And so these cowards are plotting and conniving. They just lack opportunity. How can it be done? Verse 2, they were seeking how to put him to death. Verse 4, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them, which is why when Judas comes forward, it's so exciting because now they got away how it can be done. That's the only thing that's been stopping them up to this point is a, is a plan for how they can accomplish their desire. Their desire has been unwavering since chapter 19, but the people have been giving Jesus protection. They sought, still sought how to put Jesus to death, but they feared the people, which then leads to opportunity. A betrayal is planned. A betrayal is planned. Now, you may have forgotten this, but Satan has already shown up in Luke's gospel back in chapter 4. Turn back there briefly. Luke 4. Luke is a masterful writer. And he, he sets things up and leaves them hanging for, you know, 16, 17 chapters. So Jesus is triumphant through the temptation. Satan tries to tempt him. Look at chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Here's that time. This is the opportune time. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who is numbered of the twelve. That's truly frightening. Point one, Satan seizes his opportunity and entered Judas. Satan seizes his opportunity and entered Judas. Judas was one of the twelve. He was one of the twelve chosen by Jesus. And as far as we can tell, he didn't stand out in any way, shape, or form. When the disciples are told one of them will betray him, they don't all turn and say, Judas, right? This is frightening. And what that means, I mean, turn, turn back to Luke chapter 9. What this means is that Judas had been empowered by Jesus with divine power Heal disease and cast out demons. Judas had proclaimed the gospel in Judea and Galilee. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. By the way, there's another irony. The one who had previously been given power over all demons becomes possessed by Satan. Which means Judas did this and in a way that didn't stand out. There's no note of all but one of them did this. He's part of the 70, presumably, sent out again. Jesus rightly said in Matthew, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord. This, this man is so close to the truth, so close, and yet so far And Satan enters him. Now, people speculate about Judas' psychology. Why would he do this? Luke tells us nothing about that. In Luke's tale, 
Judas really is simply a plot device. He's a, he gets things moving. He doesn't focus on the why. We don't even know what happens to Judas until Acts chapter 1, where Peter summarizes his suicide. But it is frightening that Judas was one of the 12. He was in close. He spent three years with Jesus. He exercised divine, supernatural power, working miracles, healing disease, casting out demons, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and yet Satan could find a happy home in him. And we would be warned, lest we think we stand, someone who seemed to be so secure, so safe, so he's there. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He's one of the 12 and yet he can do this. Satan sees his opportunity, and he seizes it, and he enters Judas. And then Judas goes, and he meets with the chief priests and scribes who gladly agree to pay. Because finally, they have a how. How can it be done? Here's how it can be done. Here is one of his inner circle. They'd already tried to send in spies pretending to be sincere. Here is one who's exactly that, and he's part of the inner circle. I mean, they must have thought, Eureka, we got it. And they plot and they plan. He conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And even that betrayal itself is a fulfillment of Scripture. Even that betrayal itself is predicted in the Psalms. Finally, Judas now seeks. Judas, indwelt by Satan, now seeks an opportunity to betray Jesus. That's how this section ends. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. You see, Judas, by virtue of being in the inner circle, would know when there'd be less people. They want to arrest Jesus when there's not a large crowd around because they don't want a revolt. They don't want a mob who's unruly. And so Judas is now looking for his opportunity to betray Jesus. This is, this is what religious leaders of Israel, this is what... A close disciple of Jesus spends their time preparing for the Passover. And it stands in stark contrast to our Lord's preparations. There's also irony here, irony in our Lord's preparations, as Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare the upper room. I want you to notice that we read in Exodus that the people were given careful instructions on how to prepare and to serve the Passover. And here in this text, their Passover carefully plans, and prepares to serve his people. Jesus is the true Passover, but he is concerned with his disciples. He's concerned with serving them, making sure this is done properly. Jesus prepares to celebrate the Passovers with his disciples, yet he has already predicted that God's wrath will not pass over him. Think about that. Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover, and then on the cross, will God's wrath pass over Jesus? No. It will abide on him fall upon him and he will absorb it. Now there's great irony here as well. So let's read verses 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go, prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover of my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. 
In stark contrast to the evil of Jesus' enemies, we're going to see the faithfulness of Jesus. First, the timing. We moved from the Passover was drawing near to here. It's the day. This is now, understand, the day when Jesus will celebrate the Passover with his disciples, institute the Lord's Supper, go to their garden, pray, get arrested, and thus begins the cycle of his mock trials culminating in his crucifixion. We are here. We are here. It has arrived. So the timing, the Passover, the day of the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And notice Luke's emphasis. And again, this is getting at divine sovereignty, divine purpose. Jesus couldn't just die on any day. This is the day which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. All of the predictions in Daniel, all of the predictions throughout the Old Testament are coming to their culmination here. And Jesus is prepared for it, he's planned for it, he's in control. The day the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now we get to planning. Jesus gives instructions about the meal. And notice again that Jesus to the very end is being faithful. Did Jesus need a lamb for his sins? No. Yet Jesus is doing this because he's living our life on our behalf. He's doing this because his disciples need a lamb for the. He's planning all of this for them, not for himself. He, he needs no blood to protect him. And when he sheds his blood, he will not be protected from God's wrath. And so he sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover, which would involve a number of things. They need a place to eat the Passover. They'll need to acquire a lamb and get it killed in the temple. They'll need to get bitter herbs. They'll need unleavened bread, and they'll need wine. And so they ask him, where will we have us prepare it? And he told them, behold, when you have entered the city, now the city is probably Jerusalem, but it also could be Bethany where he was staying. Um, it's not named. Behold, when you have entered a city, the city, a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover of my disciples? So they're going to find a man, likely a servant, because he's not the master, and he's doing servant's work carrying a jar. And they're going to follow him into the house he goes into. They're going to find the master of the house, and they're going to say, the teacher needs this house. It's very similar, in fact, to the instructions Jesus gave just prior to the triumphal entry. Remember, you're going to go, you're going to find a, a donkey which no one's ridden on, and if someone says, what are you doing? Saying the teacher needs it. And what we're seeing is Jesus gives prophetic instructions. It's possible that this was arranged. People have suggested that, but I still don't see how Jesus could know that when they enter the city, there's going to be the guy with the jar. And so I take this much more in similar fashion to what we saw before the triumphal entry, that this is Jesus functioning prophetically. We're again seeing he is in control. There's a plan in place. This isn't happenstance. Every step of this has been planned, worked out. Jesus is fulfilling the divine purpose. And he gives instructions. Which gives us from timing to planning to sovereignty. Sovereignty. Luke is clear. They went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. All is fulfilled as Jesus spoke. Exactly. All is fulfilled as Jesus spoke. Which brings us just to two closing points as we prepare for Passover celebration of the Lord's Supper. Which Jesus is going to co-opt. He's going to take the Passover celebration 
And he's going to give it new meaning and a new use. Rather than celebrating this once a year, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. In our tradition, we do it monthly, but you could do it every day, every week. Jesus is in complete control. I just want you to notice that he's in complete control. His enemies are plotting, and usually when people are plotting and scheming, they think they have the upper hand, they think they're in control. Jesus is in complete and total control. The crucifixion is no accident. It is not plan B. As early as chapter 9, Jesus has said, this is exactly what I'm doing. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's doing it. And even his enemies unwittingly are fulfilling God's purposes. They're fulfilling prophecy. Judas's horrific betrayal is fulfilling prophecy. Because our God is sovereign. He is in control. Even over the actions of wicked men like Satan controlled Judas. He's in control. Just as he said it would happen, it happened. But I want to focus on one other thing. And that is this. Jesus is utterly Faithful. He's utterly faithful. I mean, this is now, we're hours before the crucifixion. And yet to the very last moment, Jesus is being faithful and obedient. The law prescribes that this feast be observed. We read that in Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that I will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus, standing in our stead, needs to appear in our bestead. And observe this feast. And he does. Down to the details of the law, he is faithful. And he's concerned for his disciples. He's going to tell them, if we read ahead a little bit. Look at verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he's going to tell them its new meaning, its new function. We'll look at that next week. If, if you knew that your death, your torturous death, was hours away If I knew that, I think I might be hard-pressed to be so focused on others. But Jesus is serving them. Even as they're going to argue about who's the greatest, the one who is the greatest is becoming a servant. Jesus is utterly faithful to the end. He is fulfilling his course. His enemies are plotting and conspiring about him. The mechanism is now in place for his arrest and his crucifixion. And Jesus is focused on preparing for the Passover. He's focused on spending time with his disciples and giving them one final instruction for the cross. Because our Savior is faithful. Our Savior is righteous. Our Passover lamb is without spot or blemish. One other irony is in my title. This is the final truly kept Passover, is it not? After this... Jesus' disciples no longer observe the Passover. Rather, they observe the Lord's table. They don't observe it at the place the Lord chooses in Jerusalem. They observe it wherever they gather, wherever we gather. This is the final Passover, final preparations for the Passover. And Jesus even says as much in verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For this age... This is the last truly observed Passover. Now, as we prepare for a time of communion, I'm going to call the ushers forward. 
Our Lord went to great lengths to give us this meal. It was planned, it was carried out, it was his desire. Because Jesus took the symbolic elements, the, the lamb who shed blood, and we knew that that blood of that lamb didn't protect anybody from anything, but rather it was God seeing their faithfulness, knowing the lamb that would come. If the amen come forward now, and we are going to eat of this meal. And the meal is a sign. When Jesus said, this is my body, nobody in that room would have thought he meant, he's standing in front of them, remember, no one in that room would have thought, this bread is Jesus' body. Now, they understand it's symbolism, it's symbolic. Now, before we partake of this, before the men pass it out, I'd like to take a moment just to examine ourselves as the Apostle Paul instructs us, that we'd examine our hearts Make sure that we're right with the Lord. If you're not, confession with the Lord, getting right with him is as easy as talking silently to him in prayer. But let's just take a moment and do that.